This is Stena. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Identity in Me, or In Me for short. My guest for this episode is Rob Delalu, a respected former basketball adversary who is now a colleague in the field of multicultural affairs. He is currently the Director of Multicultural Affairs at Bristol Community College in Fall River, Massachusetts. Rob, how's it going? I'm good, my man. How are you today? Doing well. Long time. We haven't seen each other in a minute. Absolutely. Ever since, you know, our basketball days back, uh, our battles, and now it's, uh, we're both in different roles. So I like to see our progress, but it has been some time. Yeah, very long time. I think the last time I saw you, your team was wiping the floor with mine by something like 30 or 40 points, um, unfortunately. So for a while, when our teams played against each other, I think the first time we played against each other was in 2010. My team was trying to get into the regional tournament. It was the first year of Bristol having a basketball team. Uh, You were hired as their first coach. And that game went down to the wire because you had a point guard who was a problem. Problem. I remember him well, Frank Stevenson. Game went down to the wire. Uh, Y'all almost won a shot at the buzzer. It was one point he stepped on the line. Remember, I said it was a three and the ref said he stepped on the line and he did step on the line, but I was trying to make sure that and went in, but I was trying to tell the ref it was a three to send it to overtime, but the ref wasn't happy and he actually got the right call. So, <laughs> And yeah. here we are talking, uh, but I know you no longer coach the team there, right? Yeah, no, I resigned um, back uh, July 2019. It was just a... Uh, one of those things that I, you know, was there for um, a decade, you know, 10 years. And um, we had a lot of success and got ourselves to national rankings as high as number three in the country, um, which was fantastic. Um, a couple of our guys were all Americans doing some great things. But, you know, their stories always resonate with me. I sleep with their stories every day. And I just kind of wanted to really start saying, well, how can I really affect change? On a macro level, um, a lot of my guys who I work with are successful and it's just a small group size that, you know, my anywhere from my 15 to 18 guys per year, um, you know, a lot of success, some failures as well. But um, it's one of those things where we try to put ourselves in position and to to be successful. And and I just, you know, but with a lot of the students who I work with on a daily basis, I just said to myself that I, I would like to you know, put myself in a position where I'm able to influence policy and change on a bigger level and, and, you know, coaching basketball at the time. And, you know, at the junior college level, it's really, really difficult um, with the lack of resources, the amount of time that you put in. Um, and I knew that I could, you know, spend my time doing other things. And, um, and part of that was to get myself in a position where my career can take off and then also um, pursue my doctoral degree, which I just started my doctoral program this past um, just this, this month, actually. Right on, brother. What are you pursuing your degree in? So um, my doctoral program, I'm, um, I'm at Johnson & Wales in an educational leadership program. Um, so it's higher ed leadership. So. Okay. So pretty soon I'm going to have to call you Dr. Delalu. Yes, absolutely. All right, cool. <laughs> you call me Rob, but I told my son he has to call me Dr. Dad. So. Man, I figure if you put in that many years to study, people better call you doctor. So uh, when you uh, get those letters, uh, I will be happy to refer to you as such. And I'm actually thinking about it as well. Um, I've developed some interests since coaching that I'm looking to pursue. And, you know, I want people to be able to 
see my thoughts and ideas in writing. And um, I know a lot more of us are needed. Um, and when I say us, Black men needed uh, to share our perspective and um, get our thoughts in, in textbooks. But um, kind of pivoting away, you were coaching at Bristol for 10 years, you said? Yeah, well, uh, 11 years to be exact. Okay. And did you have a, an additional role there? Because I know that wasn't a full-time position you had. Did you have another role? And how did you eventually find yourself in multicultural affairs? Um, when I first got the job, I was at a high school and I was an assessment coordinator for that high school. And um, so they wanted, they asked me, you know, after like my third year, if the director of the multicultural center, um, they just they just started a multicultural center, has been there for about a year, year and a half. And they said that he was retiring. Great brother. So they asked me if I would be interested in going there in a, on an acting role. And so that was around 2014. I started at the college full time. So I was doing that and I was coaching. Um, so my vision was to really kind of involve our community, our students and faculty and staff and try to educate them more and more. Just more about everything, you know. <laughs> now, you are uh, the director of multicultural affairs or director of the multicultural center? Yeah. So, um, yeah, so kind of just finished that off. So I, I took over as acting director, became uh, the full-time director. And then um, our, you know, our numbers were fantastic. Things were moving. And then what happened is we had a new vice president and he wanted to um, create a role of multicultural affairs director because the college needed it versus it being just the um, director of the center. Now, because we didn't have the resources or we didn't have these type of positions, essentially, even though I was a director of the multicultural center, it really was a director of multicultural mm -hmm. affairs. If you know how, you know, uh, two-year schools are. Sure. Um, so they kind of just made it official where it gave me a little bit more autonomy, a little bit more power to you know, create change in some policy and ask the questions and, and be part of certain conversations that maybe before I was a little bit intrusive in doing it. Um, and I wasn't invited um, to the table a lot of the time. So I had to kind of force my way there. Whereas in this role, I, I have, I'm, I have to be invited. Like it's part of our, you know, our culture that I need to be at the table when we're making decisions on equity, inclusion, and diversity. Okay. Well, congrats on that. Sounds like quite the meteoric rise. Yeah, absolutely. And now um, I just now received an interim role, VP role that I'm also overseeing athletics, women's center, veterans center. Okay, check you out, Rob. Yeah, Office of Disability Services as well as my other roles. So, it's, so it's, I didn't introduce you adequately. So is it director of multicultural affairs and interim vice president of student services? Correct. Let's go. Yeah, correct. <laughs> All right. I want to be you when I grow up, even though we're not that um, different in age. Yeah. yeah. So interestingly, uh, you and I have uh, a lot in common. I mean, we both coached basketball. We're both black men. Uh, we'll get to your identity in a second so that our audience can uh, really know who you are. And um, back when I left QCC to come to Phillips Exeter Academy, um, I almost didn't take this position because uh, a counter offer was made that I didn't expect. So mm -hmm. the uh, director of human resources at the time 
finds me in the hallway and says, hey, I hear you're leaving to go to another school to do diversity work. And we're wondering if you'd be interested in being our director of diversity, equity and inclusion. And I'm like, whoa, hold on. I'm going from special programs coordinator in the admissions office to director of diversity, equity and inclusion. You're going to give me a nice salary bump. And I thought about it, but I'm like, I don't really have the experience. I mean, I have the life experience, but I feel like I need some experience as a diversity practitioner in a different sort of way than what I was doing in admissions to adequately do this job to serve people across the institution, faculty, staff, et cetera. And there was a moment where I found myself getting in my feelings. I was bothered by the offer, even though I shouldn't have been, because I wondered, would they offer just anybody the opportunity to be director of, um, of IT uh, director of campus safety. It feel it felt like they were plopping me into the role because I was simply a black man. And I remember talking to my mentor about this, who you know, Bill Rayner, and he didn't agree with me. He said, "You're a nice guy. Uh, you bring life experience to the position, and this is all about sharing what you've experienced in trying to guide people to do better by people who look like you and otherwise." All right. Uh, So, Rob, how do you identify racially and ethnically? So um, I identify as a a black male and I am Haitian and Trinidadian. My father was from Haiti and my mother was from Trinidad. Okay. Do you connect with being a black American more than you do Haitian and Trinidadian? I do. I I was born in uh, Queens, New York moved to, you know, Florida, lived in little Haiti for a little while in in Miami, Florida. And then I moved out this way. My mother and and dad weren't together. My my father wasn't really in the picture. And my mom came from some traditions back in her country where they were doing like arranged marriages and and things that she didn't agree with. So she took off here to the United States. So it would just been her and my brother and I and it would, you know, we really kind of just, you know, I'm black American. You know, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, obviously people can say, well, you're African-American. I'm not necessarily, I want to make sure I, I embrace all the different types of blackness that are within my, my DNA. And, you know, so I'm a, I'm a black American that, you know, again, that with many different ethnicities and our family's pretty, you know, diverse from, I looked at our, our tree. So, and that's how kind of, you know, how I am. And I just identify that way and I feel it's easier to encompass it all. So yeah, growing up, when people would ask me, I would say I'm Haitian because mm-hmm. I grew up in Dorchester and it felt like everybody had an ethnic identity. At the time, I didn't know the difference between race and ethnicity, but I knew I had to be specific about where my family was from. Mm-hmm. And then as I got older, especially when this cat in college said something that really resonated with me, he said, you know, when we're walking down the street as black men, nobody stops to ask if you're Haitian, if you're Dominican, if you're, you know, name it, um, they see a black person. And so for that reason, I identify as a black man. And um, so since then, I've identified as black and I don't necessarily shy away from telling people that I'm Haitian. uh, But I think it's important to start the conversation and tell somebody that I identify with the diaspora because we have very similar challenges um, to overcome. Now, you know, that's part of my identity. Um, I have challenges as a black man. Um, I have challenges as a Haitian. You know, uh, English is my third language. I don't know if you knew that. 
So I did not know that. Yeah, no. So I was in ESL when I started public school and I used to actually fight with the African-American kids because they didn't like the Haitian kids. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, identity gets real yes, it complicated does. very quickly. And so, so yes. is there an aspect of your identity that um, you feel faces less discrimination and challenges than your black and Haitian and Trinidadian identity? Yeah, well, I mean, if I'm going to look at privilege, but being a male gives me a lot of advantages um, over our female counterparts. Um, at you know, I think uh, when I really look at that and I kind of you know kind of deep dive into it, I really look at um, gender as part of that. Um, I think one thing about when we talk about privilege in in America, it seems to be one of those really difficult um, conversations to have yeah. because I think sometimes people really don't truly understand what that ultimately means. Um, if I was to look culturally, obviously there's, you know, there, there are people in Trinidad, just like you will see in some Cape Verdean, you know, people are familiar with the Cape Verdean off of West Coast Africa. There's a lot of Cape Verdeans in um, South Coast and Mass. Trinidadians are very similar in the sense of sometimes depending on where you are in the island or where you're born, it's, there's privilege over those others who look just like you but based off of where you are or what your um, socioeconomic uh, status may be within the island can also be part of that um, privilege that's there as well. And there's the color of your skin, the colorism. It depends on their socioeconomic status as well, but there's preference for the lighter skinned Haitian Mm -hmm. over the darker skinned Haitian. Um, I experienced some of that growing up. I remember being in the tub, my grandmother scrubbing my skin because when I was young when i was a, a, a around three four years old my skin was lighter and as i was getting darker my grandma would scrub my skin because she didn't want me to get darker and she didn't want my hair to become more coarse and the odd part in it all is that she was a dark skinned asian woman you know so it wasn't like she was like hey you know you're starting to get my complexion you know embrace it it was more like nah i don't want you to have the challenges that i did and she was like scrubbing with all her might yeah. I had a conversation last week and the conversation state um, was stated that they did not want, he was Puerto Rican, but this fa- his parents did not want him speaking Spanish because they thought that that was going to show him as he was an ESL student. It was going to show him that he was from a different country. They wanted him to be as American as possible. And so by denying him the right of speaking that second language, they thought it was going to be beneficial to him. Now this individual is in higher ed and it's a disadvantage because he's like, if I was able to speak Spanish, I would probably be way more valuable right now to my students and to my career path. Whereas, you know, but the parents saw it as a defense mechanism to help their child, not realizing it was more of a hindrance than it was anything else. Interesting. And those things we learned from our parents and elders take a long time to to detangle. Um, and so I imagine that he's still trying to embrace learning and knowing Spanish. Um, do you know if he's on a journey to learn it? No. He's on, from what I'm hearing, he's learning from what I'm hearing. But think about his positioning now, because the parents felt that this was the best for him to try to fit in with a group that he probably won't completely fit in with. But then the people that he's supposed to really have that affiliation with and grow up with, which is, right, he doesn't speak the language to communicate with. You know, a lot of times with systemic racism and stuff like that, we say that there's things that oppress us, and they are. 
things that oppress us that are policy driven, but there are some psychological things that we oppress ourselves with as well. Speaking of the psychological aspect of racism and race, a student walked into my office four years ago and asked me a question that blew me away. I didn't know how to answer it. It took me some time. I had to walk away from her, schedule another appointment. And usually I'm sharp. I could come back with something. But here's the question she asked me. She goes, Dean Camillus. I said, yes. How do I decolonize my mind at a predominantly white institution? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I'm like, oh, my God. The fact that you're even thinking about decolonizing your mind, mm. right? It took me some time to be able to come up with an adequate response to that. And I'm still unpacking that. And when I shared that with my colleagues to talk about as a group uh, during a staff meeting, um, the Dean of Multicultural Affairs at the time, my supervisor says, yo, that's a dissertation, man. Um, and so, yeah, there are unique challenges that students of color face as they're trying to navigate these institutions. And so in your position at Bristol, what sort of challenges around identity do you see your students having? particularly students of color, let's key in on that population. Like what is coming up as you're engaging with students that you're dealing with on campus? Well, I mean, there's a ton of things that, that pop up with students and there's the surface level things that you always hear. Um, you hear about, you know, transportation, you hear about services of being first gen student, you hear about those things, right? If those things are really, those are the easy things that pop up, right? But one thing that is interesting that always seems to pop up and always seems to resonate with me is the students not being as free of who they are. I always say that students don't know how to college. They don't know in a sense of what is what their rights are, what they're supposed to have in their experience. So this is why you see such low retention rates because a lot of our students just, they, they kind of just go on to their own. They, they, they say, you know, this is not for me. They just, you know, they go in class and the class is really, you know, a lot of people who don't, they don't identify with, they're quiet. Um, they're not from the same area sometimes, you know, then they're really trying to navigate how are you supposed to fit in? How are you supposed to act when you are different? You know, class size is 20 and there might be one, hopefully two. Sometimes you're lucky in this three students of color in that classroom if, if you can get there. But for the most part, you're, you're really on an island on your own. They don't know how to advocate for self or, at, or ask for help. Um, and when they do sometimes or they are struggling, there's a lack of communication between a professor and themselves. And that lack of communication is the professor doesn't know how to communicate with them and they don't know how to communicate with the professor. And it doesn't mean like, and, and what I mean by that is professors sometimes have this assumption of what you should know and, and, and what the expectation is. And sometimes that student haven't got that material. A lot of what you just said had me feeling like the students that are struggling and having some of these communication gaps with instructors might be first generation students. Is that correct? And I would also ask, do you find that there's a difference in the way first generation students of color experience college versus those who are not first generation? Absolutely. So I think, again, some of the identifiers when you're a student is your racial identification, right? The others are where you fall as far as social capital. Social capital is part of what makes, I think, that which really shows this difference in gaps that there are um, nationally, not just locally, but nationally. And what happens is, is if my son is going to be much better off in college because he's going to know how to ask questions, what questions to ask, 
where the financial aid office is, the bursar's office, what to do with your book exchange or what to or how to purchase your books, when to purchase your book, how to take notes, what's important. He's gonna have, those are little basic points that I can tell him that he does not have to learn for himself yeah. Yeah. completely. So if you're a first generation generation student, no matter what color you are, that's tough because you're trying to figure this all out in real time. But when you are a person of color and trying to figure out as well in real time, it's now you're having this battle of identity. Plus you're having this other battle of identity because this is just completely new to you. But if you are not a first generation student, that lack of comfort can be bridged by those people who can help teach you what to do and and how to navigate college a little bit better. I, I agree with that. And, you know, similarly, I feel as though I can provide guidance to my daughters that um, my parents couldn't provide to me, even though my father said, you are going to college. Yeah. But he didn't say that, you know, here are the offices uh, where you can get um, guidance around any number of issues. And it wasn't malicious. He just did not know. As I'm thinking about the dynamics that you um, encounter at um, Bristol Today, while I was doing some background for this interview, I learned that 39% of Fall River uh, is comprised of people of color, but 22% of the students at BCC identify as students of color. What do you think contributes to that? What is the barrier for young people of color or folks in color in general um, to pursue higher education in Fall River? You're targeting Fall River, but I'll probably go for Bristol County as a whole. Um, in certain areas, like New Bedford, is pretty broad as well as far as their um, students who identify. I believe right now in their high school, 48% of their students are Latinx students, believe it or not. And it's, it's really a high, high number. The reason being that there's a lot that goes into it. It's a pretty loaded question if you look at it. And there's some that are systemically by what we do at the college, and some is it by what we as people also want to do and think. Um, so I think it, 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 you have both of those areas kind of mixing together that creates this, this disparity that we're seeing. Um, you would love to see whatever our numbers are locally to represent what we are you know, as a school. Now, we are a feeder school, so if you're looking at Fall River Campus and if the, those numbers, which I don't have in front of me, so if those numbers are the true numbers just for Fall River, you got to understand, too, there's, there's a blend of people from surrounding communities that come to the school, which can kind of change and skew those numbers a little bit because it's not directly just a Fall River school. The one thing that I do see is that, you know, as a school, we don't, you know, we have roles that we're now just starting to get to try to recruit um, students from various diverse backgrounds. We have a position that um, was created in order to start really looking at you know, different groups, whether it be the Cambodian population, the Cape Verdean population, Haitian, Black and African-American, Latinx. The problem with race and recruiting, and a lot of colleges do, is they think it's, oh, African-American and Latinx. And as you said earlier, in our Black community, you had to identify that, yeah, I'm Black, but I'm also Haitian, right? Like, I identify as Haitian because we're a little different. And you said you had differences between the African-American kids and the Haitian kids, which I bet would have differences between the Trinidadian kids and which would have difference between the, and we are, we understand how all that works. Yeah. Colleges don't think that way. They think 
It's very black, white, Spanish. Because colleges feel this way and they don't really know how to intently recruit areas and what is the appropriate things to do in, in doing that. Like, how do you target that? A lot of times, too, the old traditions are bringing people to your campus. Yes, we want to get people to the campus, but you got to go meet them where they are, right? Yep. You know, are you going to temple? Are you going to the churches? Are you are you having events that are really specific to these people's culture? That are, and, and are you really establishing relationships? Relationships going to where they are. You're bringing a lot of things back for me from when I was doing admissions at QCC. I was recruiting in the basement of churches. I was in barbershops. I was at nursing homes. I went to the students, recognizing that I sometimes identified with them, sometimes I didn't. And I needed to figure out very quickly what language I needed to speak to them in. And I'm not talking about a different language. It's, okay, right now I'm not going to talk about rigorous curriculum. They don't understand that. And so I have to communicate uh, what we can offer to them in a way that is accessible. And I often found that that was missing. I, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I totally understand that and um, and agree with it. And the other area that I felt like we could have done better when I was uh, recruiting at QCC was having more language capability. Um, so we had Spanish speakers on staff, but we didn't necessarily have somebody who could speak uh, Vietnamese. Uh, we didn't have people who could um, speak Ga, Twi, name the language, we, uh, Arabic. Um, so when you don't have diversity in your staff, it is going to impact who you can uh, recruit and retain. Um, do you feel as though your staff overall and faculty are representative of the local community? Um, so I, I think we're diverse, but are we what our students are? No. I know a consultant that uh, can help you all deal with that. Um, I know him very uh, well. I've, I've known him for 39 years. Real good guy, reliable, sharp. Um, let me know if you want to talk to him. I, well, like, absolutely. <laughs> I can get him on the phone any time of day. Final question here. So you have this um, array of students of color. They don't all identify similarly. How do you find that they experience race and racism? It's an interesting, it's an interesting question. So we haven't had school since the protests really started, right? We've been remote, so I've been doing a lot of programming remotely. But it's a lot different than having tons and tons of students walking in at a time and you're able to see it in real life, right? Um, as it's as it's all impacting and happening. However, one thing that I find interesting is that you know that I found over the years that when it comes to race and racism and social justice, our young generation are really resilient and they'll stand up. But a lot of times too, it, you don't see your prediction of who should be standing up is nowhere near what you maybe what you may have envisioned. Like for instance, if like, as I say, 60% of our center is people of various colors that not non-white, right? However, they are not the ones that are sometimes standing up and saying something. It's really the people who are white, and which is pretty fascinating. A lot of our black males stay quiet now. Uh, they're not the ones that are in the front preaching because I don't know if it's out of fear or if it's out of, I'm not really sure, like, nothing is going to happen. Um, the guys are generally a little quieter yeah. um, the guys will get in debate. They'll do a debate right there in real time. But outside of that 
five minutes, 10 minutes that that's happening. You don't really hear from them to carry that on, um, which is kind of concerning to me because I'd love to hear their voices more. Um, and some of my leadership programs and things that I'm doing, I'm trying to establish that with some of these guys, you know, with some of our young men. It, like I said, it's a, it's a very broad base of things that you're seeing. But I, I believe that, it, you know, there's a lot of variables that go into it and why that's happening. Um, a lot of our inner city, my, my guys from the hood, hood guys, they don't even want to even, they don't even chime in. They're very, very quiet about it. Yeah, I hear that. And that's disappointing to hear. Um, but having worked with young men previously um, at the community college level, and even, you know, here at a boarding school, our young women are far more vocal than our young men of color. And um, going back to my experience at QCC, I don't remember my ball players who are mostly Black and Latinx talking about some of these issues. They're very much about the sports. And I think there's a socialization that occurs there. There's also like human development stuff going on. Um, but I think there's a socialization around that that you touched upon. And so, you know, good luck with your programming and bringing that out of them. And and so I'm wondering, as you come up with the programming for your young men, if you have chosen to share with them your own experiences with police brutality. I didn't know this until I read it online that you had an experience at 15 years old of walking from a party in college and um, being held at gunpoint by police officers for walking home. Um, can you talk briefly about that? Yeah, absolutely. It was in high school. So I was walking from a high school um, dance. I was going across the street to a convenience store at the time, you know, we would buy a pack of gum, you know, and then me and my, my boy went to a pack of gum. And on our way back, um, all of a sudden, these cop cars just started flying at us, you know, this all over the place. And then within seconds, we're on the ground with guns drawn to our backs and literally saying that we fit the bill of a description. I'm asking I'm vocal at the time. My friend, he's he's kind of really like shook, really quiet. And I'm the one asking the questions, like your basic questions. Um, and they said that I met the, I fit the bill that, you know, and I'm like, what is the description? And then they said six foot black man. And how many six foot black males are there in this, you know, in this world? But that was their description that they went off of. Nothing like clothes, nothing like what they were coming from, where they were running or any of that type of stuff. At the time, it was a private school party, and I got a little scholarship to play um, to, to play sports and be at the school. I just moved from New York not too long ago, um, and they didn't believe that I was part of that 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 private school. You could see the school; like the school's right there. I'm telling them that I go to the school, and they did not believe that I went to that school. Um, and I was basically, you know, seconds away from being um, arrested for something I don't know. It's still a trigger. Every time I see these, you hear these stories, I remember these type of things are when you're, you're, you're drawn and the guns are pulled to the back of your head and you don't know if you move the wrong way or whatever happens at night. It's such one of those things that just, it, I, I, it's just, it triggers, you know? Yeah, yeah. To think over 20 years ago, you may have been a hashtag long before hashtags. Absolutely. Saying or doing the wrong thing in that moment. So uh, thankfully, you're still here with us. Uh, you know, I've never had an encounter of that sort, um, but my mom and dad did. 
actually. I won't tell that story because my mom didn't give me permission to share it. So I'll <laughs> yeah. take a, 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 a I'll take a step back there. <laughs> hey Rob, thank you for your time today, man. I appreciate this opportunity to chop it up with you. Uh, good luck uh, with the work you do at Bristol. And I know this won't be the last time that you and I have a conversation. What were your takeaways from this episode? A lot, I hope. There are layers to consider when it comes to identity. Hopefully you heard that for yourself. Until the next episode of In Me, keep reflecting.